This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. One afternoon, Hazel's mom was at work, and her grandmother was singing her a little song to get her to nap. A favorite hymn that pretty much always worked. But on this day, it was Grandma who fell asleep on the couch. So three-year-old Hazel got up from the bed and wandered around the sunny house in Trinidad, warm breeze coming in through the open windows. And she walked to the piano, and she played that hymn, that song her grandma had just sung herself to sleep with. She had never played the piano before. She took what she'd learned from watching her mom teach bigger kids lessons when no one knew she was watching, took what she'd been able to deduce about the functioning of this marvelous machine that she wasn't yet allowed to touch, and took what she'd heard, took the music that filled her, and she played. Not like a child. These weren't mere probing notes stumbling toward a melody. What her grandmother heard, awake now, and agape in the doorway, was music, fully formed, two-handed. What she'd heard, she'd say, was a miracle. One afternoon, Frank Damrosch was in his office at Juilliard, making notes and some music from Mendelssohn or Mahler, or whatever the professor was doing before he'd heard an atrocity being committed down the hall. He couldn't take it. He wasn't in charge of auditions, but he couldn't just sit idly by as someone butchered Rachmaninoff. The point of your Juilliard audition was you demonstrated your mastery of the masters. The point of the audition was you showed what you'd learned so they could determine whether you could be taught. But here, someone was ruining the professor's day by ruining the prelude in C-sharp minor. Someone was improvising and interpreting it. And as he stormed down the hall to put a stop to it all, he could hear all the better just what was all wrong. Someone was playing the minor chords as six. It was a bastardization bordering on blasphemy. And the professor barged in, and then he stood in the doorway, agape. The music drowning out the traffic in 120th Street as he watched an eight-year-old girl at the piano. And let's just say it too, as he watched an eight-year-old black girl, and it was 1931, and how woke could this guy be in 1931? And as he watched her play... He realized she was playing the six and had shifted the key because her fingers couldn't stretch the whole octave. And that was the best she could do with her eight-year-old hands. Her mind, it seemed, could do anything. And he had never seen anything like it. This wasn't precociousness. This was prodigy. This was genius. This was the kind of promise that had to be harnessed and nurtured. This was the kind of promise that had to be kept. One night in 1939, the audience at Cafe Society, a nightclub, a play on words, a utopian hangout in Greenwich Village, the place to be for 1930s hipsters and radicals, dyed in the wool and wannabe, had come out to see the blues singer Ida Cox. The place had opened a year before as an intentional thumb nose or flipped bird to white-gloved and white-skinned Manhattan nightlife. It was pointedly unpretentious and political. It was the only spot south of Harlem where the performers and the crowds were entirely integrated. And on any given night, you could find Langston Hughes or Paul Robeson or assorted Rockefellers or Eleanor Roosevelt. Watching everyone. Big Joe Turner, Sarah Vaughn, Lena Horne. But not Ida Cox, not on this night at least. She was sick. And so Billie Holiday, who played there too, sang Strange Fruit for the first time there too, recommended this girl from way uptown. Trinidadian kid, who'd been studying piano with a professor at Juilliard since she was eight, 
We'd been playing at churches and winning contests up in Harlem for years already, though she was only 19. And so Hazel Scott got her shot at Cafe Society. Picture that room, with its poets and leftists and musicians and maybe even a first lady, tipsy and more, crowded around cocktail tables in the cigarette haze. And this 19-year-old girl walks up to the piano in a white strapless gown. And I will say it so you can see it better. She is gorgeous. And she doesn't launch into the blues. Doesn't slide into some fat swaller's stride. She plays Bach and Rachmaninoff. Her hands are big enough now. And Franz Liszt plays it straight and elegant and respectful. And then not. This music isn't from that night. There wasn't a string section at Cafe Society, and there wasn't a recording device there either. But we know it must have sounded something more or less like this, because she did the same thing for years, when she'd take a familiar piece from the classical canon and kind of pull it open and step inside, bringing with her everything she had, the rhythms of the West Indies, all she'd learned in Frank Damrosh's studio, in churches, and in the dance halls and juke joints in Harlem and out of town where her mother played saxophone in an all-female band. She added bass notes on the first and the third, gave it a whole syncopated swing, improvised dazzling runs at ridiculous speeds, till the old and familiar was bold and new. And she wrote this idea, people called it swinging the classics, to Carnegie Hall, to guest spots with Count Basie's orchestra, to a regular gig at Cafe Society that was so popular they opened another one uptown, where she played every week, where she made friends with Sinatra and Dizzy and Bird and Lena and Lenny Bernstein, where she caught the eye of Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the first African-American congressman from the Northeast. They got married. They had a son. And they were the toast of the town. She was on the covers of Ebony and Essence over and over. She was an activist and was one of the only performers at the time to refuse to play to segregated audiences. She would show up at a venue, a big concert hall in some big city, and find that the sold-out crowd was all white, or find that she or her band had to use the back door, had to use the colored entrance, and she'd just bail. She brought that same fight with her when she negotiated her first contract with Hollywood. She had sat in too many theaters too many times and watched black musicians and actors, watched towering talents played stooping butlers and maids, saw her friend Louis Armstrong, one of the greatest artists of the 20th century, dressed up as a savage in leopard skin on the silver screen. So Hazel Scott said her own terms when she signed with Archaea Pictures. She would never play a servant or a fool. She would never suffer the indignities that black actors like Bojangles Robinson or Butterfly McQueen had to on screen. She would have final approval of all musical numbers. She would wear her own clothes. She would only appear as herself. How's the piano, Hazel? I guess it'll hold up. When the black keys meet the white keys on Piano Avenue, do they music? They do. They swing it in G corner keyboard stream. And audiences loved her. And she became the first black person, male or female, 
to have their own network television show. It was 1950, and Hazel Scott, an immigrant, a child prodigy, was one of the most successful and beloved performers in the United States, one of the most famous women in the world, and seen as the embodiment of the promise of America. But America has always struggled to keep its promises. Her name appeared in a list of suspected subversives. She had sung a decade before at a Cafe Society benefit for a Communist Party candidate for the New York City Council. Hazel Scott volunteered to appear before the House on American Activities Committee. People didn't volunteer, and people told her not to. But she went because she had nothing to hide. And she went because she was Hazel Scott, beloved star, wife of a congressman, surely immune to blacklists. Who better to speak out against the injustice of McCarthy's witch hunt? So she appeared, she spoke out, and her TV show was canceled, and her movie career ended, and her concert bookings dried up, and she was left to pick up the pieces, what was left of broken promises, and try to assemble a life. There is no happy ending here, no clear and redemptive vindication. There is no triumphant return. There is just life. She moved to Paris, then L.A., then Paris again. She was divorced. She remarried. She was divorced again. She marched to the American consulate with James Baldwin on the day Martin Luther King marched on Washington. She wished she'd been in Washington. She attempted suicide twice. She went broke and bounced back. She had friendships that sustained her for decades. She had friendships that ended too soon, too often. Bird and Billy and on and on from drugs and booze. She had gigs in hotel lounges where the rooms were small, but the sound was perfect. She played so well and she sang so well and people just hung on every note. She did guest spots on sitcoms. She put out a great record in the early 60s and a disco record that was less so. She was a grandmother. She loved being a grandmother. She was forgotten, but so many are. She was forgotten, but she shouldn't have been. And there's a poem, a piece of a poem to remember her by, if you'd like to, by her dear friend Langston Hughes. Hazel's son read a few stanzas at her funeral after she died of pancreatic cancer in 1980. And I will read it too. And I'll leave it there. Little girl, dreaming of a baby grand piano, not knowing there is a Steinway bigger, bigger. Dreaming of a baby grand to play that stretches paddle-tailed across the floor, not standing upright like a bad boy in the corner, but sending music up the stairs and down the stairs and out the door to confound even Hazel Scott, who might be passing. The Memory Palace is produced by me, Nate DeMeo, with engineering assistance from Alyssa Dudley and research assistance from Andrea Milne. This show is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, which gets ad-serving technology from AdZerk 
and get support from the Knight Foundation, from MailChimp, which embraces creativity, chaos, and teamwork, and from listeners just like you. <laughs>